Well, I have mixed emotion about my next task. We really need to take a moment and pray for Steve Blummer, who is our interim minister of children here at Hope Chapel. Steve has been serving on our staff since last June, I think, and uh, been just done a, a tremendous job. Just feels like he's always been a part of the staff and the team and just done some great things. But Steve has also, throughout that journey, been seeking for a place to serve permanently uh, in an area that uses his, his entire range of gifts just a little bit more fully. And this morning, he's actually preaching in a neutral site. That's preacher talk for a church that another, a pastor search committee from another church is going to go to a different church and listen to Steve preach. And he's preaching in about an hour and a half. So I'm praying he gets sick and throws up while he's in the middle of the pulpit. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> uh, don't tell him that. All right? Please. All right. But we really do want to... Pr- what? Yeah, I know. I'm sure he won't be listening. <laughs> But we want to pray that just God's hand would be in that. And so just, just, just however God wants to lead. So let's just take a moment and pray for Steve and, and for Tina as they have a chance to be in that service today and then have a chance to interact with the search team afterwards over lunch. And so let's just pray for just a minute. God, we're grateful for just a tremendous relationship and friendship as well as just the impact uh, that Steve has had on, and Tina have had on the life of our church and the time that they've been with us and the way you've used them really to stabilize a, a children's ministry and allow it to grow and to flourish and even in the time when it doesn't have the, the permanent leader, if you will. And God, just a lot of great things that you've packed into them as a couple and to Steve as, as your servant. And Father, we pray for them today. You know, I know they're eager. And so, Father, if this is, if this is what you, you have for them and you, what you have for this church that's looking at them, God, we just really pray you'd make it crystal clear. But if for some reason this isn't that, we pray that you would give Steve and Tina the courage to recognize that as well and to forward. God, we pray for your provision for them. God, they really do deserve your best. And there's a church out there that really would be honored to have them as their, on their staff as their pastor. So, God, we really pray that uh, you would open doors before them. And again, just in, in these moments as the service begins at 11 and he gets a chance to speak today, just give him great clarity and conviction. Allow him to speak out of just who he is and the way that you use him. And God, let that be evident to those that are there praying and searching as to whether or not that's the right fit for their church. And God, just let your will be done. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For all of us, that should be an impetus for us to pray actively for our own search committee. And you'll be hearing from them in, in just a, a search, a short time as they've been continuing to look, you know, but for our permanent minister of children. And, um, you know, when I was in seminary, uh, I, I had a really kind of a, it was an eye-opening experience for me in a lot of ways. When I was in college, everybody who was sitting around the classroom was the same age as I was. 18, 19, 20-year-olds, they had gotten out of high school, gone straight on to school and, and et cetera. But when I got to seminary, it was a, it was a lot different bag. You know, I, I finished college and I went straight to seminary. So I was 22 years old, but I was sitting in a classroom often with guys that were 35, 40, 45, 50, you know, and, and I remember in particular one guy that I had a chance to have a conversation with. I, I was one of the really servant-hearted guys, and because our chapel wasn't big enough to seat all the students, I always went to the cafeteria during chapel and let somebody else have my seat. So I was sitting in there visiting with this guy. That's supposed to be a little funny in there, in case you didn't notice that. All right. you know. And so I was sitting in the cafeteria, having the only thing I could afford, which was coffee and biscuits and gravy, because the biscuits and gravy were 99 cents, and I could afford that. And, and you know... Uh, you know, I said to this guy that I was visiting with that, that we just finished class together, and I don't remember his name, but I said, man, I, you know, I really admire you. 
the sacrifice that you're making. He was about 40 years old. He had three kids. They were like 11, 9, and 6 or something. And they were living in seminary housing. So he he was going to school during the day, going to work from 3 to 11 at night, you know, and then getting up in the morning and starting all over again. You know, and trying in the midst of all of that, trying to be at his kids' little league games and this and that and doing all the stuff that a father should do. And, you know, and I'll never forget, this guy looked back over the table at me. He said, you know, he said, if I had just listened to God when I was coming out of college like you, seminary wouldn't be near as hard for me as it is now. And what he was communicating was that God had revealed his plan to him years before, but he just didn't want to adopt it. He didn't want to take it on as his own. He wanted to go in a different direction. You know, and... That that conversation in different forms I've heard over and over again from people in my years of ministry. And I can see it even in my own life. Ways in which God's people have made their own lives harder because they haven't adopted God's plan in time and on time. Sometimes it takes the form of somebody who... You know, when I was doing denominational work, I had a chance to work with literally numbers of pastors, you know, and in my 10 years there, I probably preached in 120 different churches across our six-state region, and and often you'd be dealing with pastors who at times got themselves into difficult situation in their churches, and what they would tell you is, well, you know what, I started sensing from the Lord a couple of years ago that I should begin to move on, but I just didn't want to leave. And now the church is starting to come apart the seams just a little bit, and ministry's getting just a little bit harder. I'll never forget during my youngest son's freshman year at a Christian college in our region, he calls me and he says, Dad, what do I tell these kids? One of his best friends on campus and a girl that was kind of like his girlfriend, but they really weren't intending to be, they were sexually active and they thought she was pregnant. And, and, and they were just besides themselves, just beside themselves. And part of what they're saying, we're saying was, what are we going to tell our parents? What are we going to do with our lives? And then on top of this, why didn't we listen to what God had said to us about our biblical sexual ethic? And, and you can, you, you can just probably play your own conversations with people and you can hear these kinds of stories like that somehow or another we as the people of God can be some of the late, last adopters of what really is God's plan. Some of you could say that about marriages that you've been in. To a certain extent, that's what you heard from Scott Aponte on, on Easter, wasn't it? Here he was a believer all these years, but his marriage got to a place where it was just about falling apart. His life was a mess. And then finally he stopped and said, I'm going to really listen to God and try to adopt the stuff that I know is true as the way that I really live my life. And things just changed. Just think how different the world would be if God's people didn't have to learn the hard way. I mean, to a certain extent, we've always had to learn the hard way. I mean, Abraham, you know, think of what Abraham's life would have been. All the heartache he would have saved if he had just waited on God to provide an heir through Sarah. No Hagar and Sarah conflict. No Ishmael that he's having to kick out of the camp. and etc. None of that stuff. None of that heartache. Think about how different our world would be. You know, today in Rwanda... They are ending their season of remembrance of the genocide. Every year from April 7th to April 14th, they have a season of remembrance where they remember the 800,000 people or more who died in 100 days in the genocide in Rwanda. A genocide in which many people who claim to have faith in Christ, even ministers of the church, Catholic and Protestant, participated. How different would the history of Rwanda be if they had just simply learned earlier what it really means when God says, thou shalt not murder? Just think, you know, um, of all the lives that have been destroyed by drunk drivers who afterwards said, if I had only known beforehand what it was going to cost. We, we, we learn the hard way all the time. And 
We come to a passage today in Acts chapter 11 that that has drawn my attention now for more than a decade. Because these are guys who were early adopters of the work of God. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Acts, Acts chapter 11. You can swipe or flip the pages to you get to Acts chapter 11. If you're using one of our Black Pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 936. Now, I know some of you were very astute, and you recognize that I skipped verses 1 through 18 of chapter 11 in our journey through the book of Acts. And you are correct, and I'm doing that on purpose. Because in many ways, they are a rehash of what we've heard in, in Acts chapter 10, where Peter is confirming to the church exactly how it is that the Gentiles came to be a part of the community of faith. And it concludes in verse 18, when, when they had heard Peter's report, it says they became silent, and they glorified God, and they said, so God has granted repentance, resulting in life even to the Gentiles. Now we pick up with verse 19 through verse 26. Now those who have been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, that goes back to Acts chapter 8, they made their way as far as Phoenicia, which is an area along the coastline that's west of, Gal- uh, of Galilee, and it stretches all the way up about 150 miles north. They made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, the island that's in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. Antioch was a major city, kind of right where Turkey bends and starts to come into Palestine, and it was right, if you will, where where lots of uh, trade and other travel from east to west passed through, especially getting to the great nations that were to the east of Israel. But pick it up with verse 20. But there were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and they began speaking to the Hellenists. They began speaking to the Gentiles, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Then the report about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Don't you just love Barnabas? And he's glad, and he encouraged them. He encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. For he's a good man. I hope that can be said about me someday. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went out to Tarsus to search for Saul, who had been probably ministering in Tarsus for nine years now. That's about the best way you can put the genealogy together. About nine years. And he says, then the chronology together. He said, then he went to Tarsus to search for Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, we wear that term today with pride. But back then, it was a word of derision. These are the Christ followers. We might say, those are the weirdos. Those are the the religious freaks. That's kind of the way they, they use that term. Great passage of scripture. As always, I want to do due diligence to the main message of the te- of the text, and then I want to back up and ask us this question: What do we see in these guys that went out and seized the opportunity that God had created by opening up the door to the Gentiles? What about these guys made them the early adopters of the new activity of God? They didn't have to wait to the end. They didn't have to wait to see how it all proved out. But these were the guys who were the pioneers in embracing this new open door that God had for them. First of all, let's, let's appreciate the monumental breakthrough that's occurring in this text. Let me, let me walk you through some stages that the book of Acts has been working through. After the foundation of the church with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the gospel was proclaimed in Jerusalem, smack dab in the heart of the homeland of those who were the promised bearers of the promise. But slowly God's been opening up the door 
to a worldwide mission, which is what he had always promised to Abraham, that I'm going to bless all the nations because of you. Slowly we see that door cracking open. First breakthrough of the Samaritans. The Jews didn't really consider them Jews, but they had Jewish blood running through their veins. And so when Philip went, etc., they had to send along Peter and John, and there was this affirmation that, you know what? The Samaritans really are supposed, supposed to be recipients of the gospel, of the mercy of God as well. So there's this first step through, this first breakthrough. Next breakthrough is this Ethiopian eunuch. You know, he, he's a guy who wants to be a Jew but can't because of his physical condition. But he's a God-fearer. He's somebody who worships God. And he's come all the way to Jerusalem, and he's brought into the fold. But he's a real small percentage of the Gentiles. I mean, really, 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 really small percentage. Gets a little wider. The whole Cornelius and Peter story. Cornelius is a red-blooded Gentile. He, he's as full-blooded a Gentile as you can get. Remember, the Jews considered them to be common, to be unclean, unfit for a relationship with God. But Cor- Cornelius is somebody who's seeking the truth, and God prompts Cornelius to seek the gospel from Peter. Remember that? The angel shows up, says, send your guys, and they go and get Peter, and they bring him back. So he is a Gentile who's seeking the truth. What happens in this text? For the very first time in Christian history, the church, Christians, take the initiative to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles who previously showed no interest in it whatsoever. Now, I know that kind of hits us like, well, big deal. It was a big deal. This is this is the final sense. There is no restraints on the gospel. Where no matter where you go, no matter who you talk to, no matter what you're doing, guess what? You can share the truth that had never been embraced by the church before. This is a monumental breakthrough, and we in 20 centuries removed, we read through and say, "Yeah, that's a pretty cool story." Yeah, let's keep going. You know, this this was something that shook the church to its core because no longer was it just limited to those who were Jewish or who wanted to be Jews, who were, or who thought a lot of the Jews, now this was designed to be proclaimed to everybody and anybody, anywhere. And the church's mission went from about being this big to being something they couldn't get their hands around at all. It just threw the gates open. This was a monumental breakthrough that God was preparing the church for. For the first time in Christian history, believers took the initiative in witnessing the Gentiles. And we should be doing so today. Second just thing that just grows out of this, and again, because we don't really have an appreciation for the geography and history, all that kind of stuff, the very fact that the doors of the of of, of the witnessing of the gospel to Gentiles took place in Antioch is, is in some ways mind-blowing. There are those who would tell you that Antioch was kind of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Okay, you know, what happened in Antioch stayed in Antioch kind of idea, right? It, 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 was a, it was the third largest, third most important city in the, in the Roman world. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, then there was Antioch. City of at least a half million people just bustling. And at its center was a, a cultic worship, a temple worship of the goddess of Daphne. Now, the, the mythology that goes with it was that Apollo, one of the great gods, fell in love with this human female named Daphne. And he was so in love with her that he chased her and he pursued her, okay, among the, the laurel bushes that grew in groves out around Antioch. But after he had united with her, he was fearful for her, so he turned her into a, a laurel bush so that nobody else would be able to recognize her. And so this this 
cultic worship had developed. There was about just a few miles outside of town, there was this huge temple. And every single night, the temple priestesses would come out and they would run around the grove or the laurel bushes. And they would be chased by the men who would then have sex with them. And this was the foundation of the spiritual life of this community. And it's in this place that the church is first called Christian, where they're recognized as having been identified the one who is resurrected. It's an incredible message about the power of the light in the midst of some of the greatest darkness on the planet. And it should give us great hope about how God can change the world through us. Now, I want to get back to my point about being early adopters of God's plan. Chapter 10 has told us that God has opened up the door to the Gentiles. Message of that spreads out through the church. Not just in, say just in Jerusalem, begins to spread out. As it gets out to the far reaches, there are those who say, oh, that's pretty cool. And they just keep doing the same thing. They just keep proclaiming the gospel to the Jews. Nothing new. It's important work, vital work, stuff that needs to be done. It's mystery ministry that needs to be formed. They just stay in it because, you know what? That's too cutting edge for us, if you will. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. But there were some guys who came from Cyprus and from Cyrene who immediately began preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Which one of those types of guys would you have been? Just interesting survey. God, God kind of shares a new word. He's ready to do a new thing. And some of us are like, yeah, I liked it the old way. And others are like, sign me up. I want to go. I want to do. Yeah. But what was it about these guys that made them recognize what God had done and immediately embrace it into their life strategy. Now, I'm reading back into the text from my perspective, but I I think there's some great value for us to see in this. And and I think the things I'm going to share with you, and I'm going to do it quickly, are really founded on scriptural truth. You know, one of the things that was different about these guys who were from Cyprus and Cyrene, who actually picked up the gauntlet that God had given them to go and share the gospel with, with the Gentiles, these guys who were the early adopters, part of what was, part of what made them different was their expectation. Their expectation. You know, they anticipated that because of who God is, now let's do some checklists. God's creator, right? He's sovereign. God's got a purpose. He's working through history. He's, he's working us to will and to work for his good plan. God, God's active. He's doing stuff. He's evolving his plan. Because of that, they had an expectation that things would change. Let me say it a different way, that their future would be different than their past. And because of that, they had their radar up looking toward what God was doing new among them. How many of us live that way? How many of you expect tomorrow to be different than last Monday? How many of you expect, how many, do I expect to be different next Monday than I am going to be tomorrow? You know what I mean? One of the reasons why you and I are late adopters of sometimes very fundamental truths that God gives to us is because we don't really expect to change. You know, one of the things in, in, that has really bothered me in my spiritual, and maybe it's just because of the, the age my kids are at and I'm talking more to that segment of the, of the Christian community or whatever, but I'm amazed at how many people who can claim to have an allegiance to God, have an allegiance to God's word, but, but their, their life ethic, their sexual ethic is no different than anybody else's. And, 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 and young Christian couples can say, well, it's, it's just financially necessary for us to live together. And, and yet, cause they don't expect anything to be different in their lives because God's there. But we don't have to point the finger just at them. We can point the finger at ourselves. And I can point the finger at myself. Somehow or another, we, we, we think it's just going to be like it's always been. And, and those who see the activity of God and join it 
immediately are those who expect God to be. And because of that, tomorrow is going to be different than it is today. And we need each other to live with that sin. Now, second, look back through this text. What was the na- What were the names of the guys who started preaching to the Gentiles? What were their names, Frank? <laughs> no names, right? Here are the guys who probably shook the church more than anybody else. Because Peter could go do his thing. He's one guy. But these are the rank-and-file Christians. These are the guys who are going to get up out of their pews on Sunday morning, go out and change the world everywhere they go. These guys who broke through these barriers, we don't have a single idea what their names were. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we love hero worship, don't we? Spiritual hero worship. The name of the biggest the books, the guy, you know, that kind of thing. These were guys who valued contribution more than they did credit. Now, so I, how does that apply to me? I got to tell you, you and I in our spiritual journey, we pay much more attention to what people see and affirm in us than the stuff that's quiet, but the things that really change us. Let that sink in for a bit. The stuff that goes up on our spiritual radar that we really want to do something about is the stuff that other people notice and we get a good slap on the back. Way to go. But the quiet stuff, like simply just being in the Word and praying, being a person of deep inner character, all those kinds of things, those things aren't quite high on our list as God speaks to us because we don't get a lot of credit for those things. And these guys were much more focused on their contribution than they were on their credit, the credit they would get. See, we often connect that which we can get credit for as being more valuable, and that's a warped value system in the kingdom of God. Let me move quickly on to the next one because I think it's tied together. These guys guys, they were able to own this ministry without having to possess it. Imagine what it would have been like. Say, you know, let's just say right now that our our denomination, and they would never do this. Our denomination came out and said, "You know what? We we need to give you a different pastor. We got to move. We're going to change all your leaders, and etc." I mean, what would be our reaction? We'd say, "Go take a hike, right?" You know. So here are these guys. They start this church. It's blossoming, right? And the Jerusalem church sends out Barnabas, and Barnabas shows up, and he's there really to kind of be in charge. And so he's encouraging them, giving. And not only that, Barnabas goes out and he gets Paul, and he brings Paul in. You know, so here are these guys, they've started, this is my church, get your hands off of it. Now, that's not what happens at all, is it? It's their ministry. They're not going to let it go, but they're not going to possess it either because it's God's. I got to tell you, one of the biggest barriers to change in our lives, biggest change barrier to change in my life is that I want to control the change. You know, I, I want to own it. I want it to really be mine. I want it to be the heartbeat of my heart. But at the same time, I want to possess it, meaning that I get to control it and not just let God do whatever he wants with it. You know what I mean? And one of the reasons why these guys were early adopters is that they could own it. They could put their heart and soul into it, pour their lives into it. But it was somebody else's to really possess and control. Last one. These guys had a tolerance for risk that most of us really struggle with. Maybe another way to say the same thing is that they could live with uncertainty. As we read the pages going forward, what happened in Antioch, the church was going to wrestle for decades trying to figure out how, how did Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians live together in the same church? Paul's going to have to come back to Acts, back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. They're going to have this big powwow. They're going to come up with a decision. That's still not going to be fully satisfactory. The church is going to wrestle with this for decades. You ask these guys, well, what's the answer? They'd say, I don't know. That's God's problem. <laughs> I can live with the uncertainty. I just know what God's done. God's opened up the door. They could, they could tolerate the risk. I got to tell you, personally 
and maybe I could speak for many of us. One of the things that robs me of the full activity of God in my life is fear, right? I see a lot of nodding. You know, one of the things that makes us early adopters of God's truth when it speaks into our life is that, is that we're not afraid to follow. We're not afraid to obey. We, we may not know where the path is going, but we're not afraid to follow because we know that God has spoken. And, and if we're going to be people who are early adopters, who don't have to learn the hard way, we're going to have to be people who can live with that kind of uncertainty, that kind of risk, the risk of rejection, the risk that comes with change and uncertainty, the loss of control. But, but I want to encourage you. It can be an, just an incredible ride. I've told this story many, many years ago, but and I'll never forget it. When our children were quite young, our oldest son, though in many ways very active, etc., there, there were times that he'd just get a little fearful. One of those days was when uh, my parents first per- purchased a, a, a personal watercraft. You know, one of these sea dews, you know, like snowmobiles on water. And of course, his father was setting a wonderful example of nice, calm driving and slow and et cetera. You know, and because I had been out there doing circles and flipping it over and tipping it and all these kinds of things and jumping waves or whatever. And his younger brother, who doesn't know any better, he had gotten on the back and he had gone with me. But, but when I pulled up to the dock towards the end of the day, the sun was beginning to set. I said, this is really your last chance. You should go for a ride. And he said, he doesn't want to go. And he's just backing away. And being the sensitive father I, I am, I said, get your butt on the back of this thing. <laughs> now, it was based in love because I knew that somewhere or another along the line, he was going to regret that he hadn't gone for a ride. You know? And in fact, he taught me a lesson in Florida a couple years later where his aunt wanted to pay for him to climb this climbing wall. And I said, he'll never climb that thing. He'll get two feet off the ground. He'll be afraid or whatever. And then she paid for him. He went up to the top and back, up to the top and back, you know, kind of thing. But it was just, so I said, you know, I, I got, coaxed him on, let him get in front. And he's driving a little bit with my hands on the side and that kind of thing. But after he kind of got going, he began to loosen up. And the next thing you know, we're flying around the lake and we're jumping waves and we're doing all the stuff that, that in some ways are, are, you know, the most fun. And sometimes if we just, if we just release our fear a little bit, God's ready to take us on the ride of our lives. Church in Antioch experienced that because they were early adopters. And so my challenge to you this morning is this. What is it that God said to you? What, what about God's plan for you do you need to adopt today? And make the choice. Despite all the risk, the fear, the uncertainty, adopt the plan and see what kind of a ride God will take you. Let's pray together. Just like in the early days of the church, Father, we still desire breakthroughs. We confess that we struggle with that at times. As a church, and as individuals. Father, we seek to give you freedom as we release our fear of losing control, as we release our desire to be somehow to receive credit, to, to be seen as somebody who's really.